0: Today I would like to talk to you about something hot. Hostility and bad temper. Hostility and bad temper. And this will be a continuation of the series that I have been doing on the sin lists of Paul. This is part four. I think this will be the last one that I'm going to attempt. And the sins of bad temper are mostly found in this first sin list of Romans 1, verse twenty-nine or 28 through 31. So I'm going to start off by reading that. It says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased or depraved mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. So that's the list and I started off the list using the old King James because that's where I do all, you know, I look the words up and stuff like that. But this color-coded listing I gave you here shows that these, these sins of bad temper are sort of interwoven in the middle of these other types of problematic behaviors mixed in there with greed and quarreling and the sins of the tongue. And I believe that the sins of bad temper found here in Romans are uh, kind of like the negative and harmful spin that we put on things. And the attitude that we have that makes talking over controversial issues problematic because we come at it with a very bad temper or hostility, if you will. If you think about it, it, it it's, a, it's a fundamental part of how we think, um, You know, because we have already decided that the world is full of X, then wherever we go, we see X, that's how we are. Some choose to see things through a lens of gender inequality, it's, they, they, they look for it, and guess what, it's everywhere. And some people choose to look through the lens of class conflict. And guess what? It's everywhere you look. But the context of Romans here is creation. The context of Romans 1 is God's creation. So back up a few verses, and we'll hit on some that we've hit on before. But... uh, these are important verses. Verse 18 was where I'd like to go back to, and it says this For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. So they're hiding something, okay? <laughs> because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invig- invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. So God, you can see God in his creation, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So leading up to verse 28, where we have our sin list there, Paul has discussed the refusal of humanity to see the world as the work of God. And that will change the way you see things. You're going to see everything totally differently. There's a book out there. Um, it's called The uh, Binding the strong man, and it's a commentary on the book of Mark, okay? And what this guy did is he took, he said, I'm gonna go through and I'm gonna give a scholarly review of the book of Mark as if it was read by a Marxist. And so the whole book is looking at it through the eyes of a Marxist, and the guy is a Marxist. And you know what? When you read through the book of Mark, you see communism and Marxism everywhere everywhere and jesus was he was a revolutionary proto lenin he really was it's everywhere but the context here is creation and when you have this already set in your mind you know it's going to change everything and the way you see it and the way you understand it, and because God values freedom of will, He allows it, right? But He doesn't. He doesn't reward it. By allowing humanity to do this, humanity is given over, as it says, to viewing the world in a way that is worthless, dead end perceptions that will be rejected. They are a depraved mind. The word actually means rejected. Okay, you think of depraved as, yeah, <laughs> but it just means rejected. You know, stamp uh, no. And it's going to be rejected rather than receive the gift of eternal life. Now, it leads to some problematic behaviors. If you read through the the chapter, and I know we've done it kind of in piecemeal, but if you read through the chapters, this way of thinking leads to some problematic behaviors. The first one that he goes through is sexual immorality. We've already talked about that, okay? The other is this depraved mind. And then he goes through the sin list which is basically the description of a depraved mind and and how people think when they eliminate the the idea of God as creator and say, well, we're not even going to go there. So the first section I want to look at is these first four here, and I think they go together because what they are, these are a desire to see harm done, a way of looking at people, a way of looking at people in these four words. There's a, a story that's really stuck in my mind. There was this man, and he was a farmer. I think he was in some place like Romania or something like that. So I'll, I'll do a Romanian accent. No, I can't. So here's this man. He's a farmer. He's got animals and stuff. And he's having a lot of trouble. He's having a lot of trouble. And nothing makes him feel better. And then one day he has this thought that really cheers him up. He says, you know, maybe my neighbor's pig will die. In other words, I would feel better relatively if my neighbor suffered some harm, right? So that I would look, you know, I would be kind of better. Uh, If something bad happens to him, right? And it's kind of like, feeling better through the suffering of others. Well, at least everybody's dragged down into this hole of despair. So the first word is wickedness. Wickedness. It's a word that occurs about 76 times and it's sort of an all-purpose word, alright It's a very generic word in my opinion. And it, 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 you know, you think wickedness, and boy, well, try and define wickedness for me, right? It's, it's not easy. You know what's bad? But I'm trying to find it, it's a general, all-purpose word. But to me, it sort of indicates and points towards the, the works, the doings, the fruits, if you will. Okay, so I think it refers to the bad outcomes of some of the other words that we've got, which maliciousness, uh, you know, a maligned attitude towards people, murderous attitude, wickedness is the doing; it's the action or action part of it. It could also include actively plotting and scheming, okay, to get those bad outcomes to happen. Maybe, maybe I can find a way to make my neighbor's pig die. Nah. So go to Matthew 22 verse 18. This is the sequence, actually it touched on this in one of the previous sinless messages where Jesus is being confronted about paying taxes and you know the story because I've told you already, they're trying to trap him, you know, they're putting him in a no-win situation. If he says this, he loses, if he says that, he loses. Verse 18, he knows what they're up to and he, he perceives their wickedness, it's that same word, he perceives their wickedness and he says, why are you testing me like this? You hypocrites! And then he, you know, he takes the coin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know the story, right? But what I want to draw out is the use of this word wickedness, okay? Wickedness is about plotting and scheming. So Jesus is going around the countryside, and he's teaching a very high level, very high standard of righteousness. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, now they could have said to themselves, you know, this guy He's got something, he's got something to say. You know what, I think we need to up our game some. They could've, that's how they could've responded, right? But they didn't, they didn't. Instead, they thought about ways that they could bring Jesus down a peg or two. Make him look foolish, make him look unpatriotic, tangle him up in silly word games. So working for a bad outcome for other people is wickedness. That takes us to our next word, which is maliciousness. All right, maliciousness doesn't occur as much. It's very similar to the previous word, okay? But it's more in the sense of thoughts and attitudes, malice, you know? It's like that guy there, you know? He's, he's you know, not thinking good things for you. He's got... Bad ideas, bad plans, desiring to see harm and to stir up trouble. Go to Colossians 3, verse 8. And this shows it in this context of words, words, okay? It says, but uh, now you yourselves are to put off all of these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man and his deeds and put on the new man. So it appears to be related, I think, to covetousness. Uh, I think just by virtue of you know, being next to it in this list, it's, it's meaningful, it's related to covetousness in some way. I mean, look, you know, you, you, you see your neighbor he has lots of nice, healthy pigs, right? He's lots of nice, healthy pigs. And, uh, you know, you're just sitting there hoping, hoping that one of them will die so that he doesn't have more than you have. It's a sort of mix of covetousness, malicious covetousness, if you will. So the next word is malignity. It only appears one time. It only appears this one time in this actual sin list. And,. Uh, It's one of those compound words. It means bad ethos, okay? Bad ethos. And uh, ethos is a word that means a set of guiding beliefs, which kind of takes back to the original concept that I was introducing. You know, how you've already decided the world is dictates or influences or colors how you see the world. So a malign outlook, bad outlook, uh, which in this case would be destructive and harmful, right? For example, if you, see, if you see life as a contest and survival of the fittest, okay, if that's your way of looking at life, you say, you know, life, life is a battle and it's survival of the fittest. That is a malignant attitude towards others because they're your enemy. It's a bad ethos, it's a bad idea, it's just a bad starting point. You know, you, you, you might welcome harm that comes to your neighbor because it means that, relatively speaking, you know, you're moving up the survival chain. So that's how these concepts will color how we view other people. The last one there is murder, okay, this is kind of like the the, the, the biggie, murder. and. Uh, causing or wishing actual death upon others. And in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus extended God's teachings about murder into the realm of thought, okay? Um, Wicked, malicious, malign thoughts are sin. And he warned us about them because they're the stepping stones that lead to the actual harm, the actual wickedness when we move from the thinking to the doing, and that's bad. Go to James 4, verse 1, verses 1 through 3. James asks, it's a rhetorical question, and he asks, where do wars and fights Quarrels and disputes come from among you. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You want and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on other pleasures." So, your neighbor's pigs are healthy, yours are not. Now, some might actually go to war with their neighbor to destroy his neighbor's pigs. You know, actively going out, I'm going to destroy my neighbor's pigs. He's got them, I don't. It's not fair, it's not just, it's not right. I'm going to take out some of those pigs. Or, they might go and steal some of the pigs, They might go to war with their neighbors so that they can take his pigs. These are thought patterns. These are thought patterns that make you an enemy of God, opposed to God, hostile to God, because God is a creator, not a destroyer, and he's a peacemaker, not a a murderer or wicked. You're the enemy of God. Okay. The next grouping I've got is two words that show up on that Romans list They're proud and boaster. And we've heard plenty about pride over the years. I know I've done full bore messages on them. So I'm not gonna pretend that this message is giving you everything you need to know about the subject of pride. But it's part of the list and I want to go through it because I think it adds a lot of flavor to the whole stew of uh, bad temper and hostility. (laughs) So sometimes our focus and our discontent, you know, when we're looking over it at our neighbor and his pig farm, you know, sometimes our discontent is not just, it's not on our neighbor's pigs or our neighbor's wife or any of his other stuff. Sometimes it's on his status, You know, sometimes it's on his status. And that's what these, I think these two words on our list are really about. The first one is proud, okay, proud. And uh, this is a version, you know, when you read the English Bible, you have to understand, you know, you might see, wow, the word proud is in, in there 50 times. But it's actually like maybe seven or eight different words and they all have slightly different meanings. This one shows up about five times. And the literal meaning of this word here, "hupophonos," is uh, making yourself appear as you are, as if you are above others. Okay, so you're in James, and uh, we just read that section there. Drop down to verse six. So continuing on in this, James says this. You know, he's talked about war. He's talked about you know the malice and and covetousness and how it leads people to go to war and fight and then verse 6 he moves into this other area and he says okay but he gives us more grace he being God and therefore he says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I just thought it was interesting that James took that section on war and hostility and moved it into this discussion about pride. The other word is boaster okay a boaster and that word is alazan, and you only see it two times. And it means someone who pretends to be something they're not, or an imposter. It literally comes from a word that means a vagabond, someone who'd go from town to town, basically you know, pretending to be someone they're not, because no one knew them. But it also carries the sense of someone who does this in a way that is arrogant and self-important. So we're still in James, drop down a little bit further, and you know James has talked about this attitude of hostility, he's talked about pride, and then he gets into talking about boasting, and he says this in verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, make profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So I thought that was, of all the you know, things I could have talked about boasting, but that one popped up, and I thought, isn't that interesting that James is linking these ideas that we find together in the sin list of Romans, and James is sort of putting them into this long section about basically bad thinking in the depraved mind, but putting a little more meat on the bones. Now remember, the context of Romans one was the depraved mind, which begins by denying God, his rightful status as our creator. So the proud, or the boastful person, or the person who is proud and it was boasting, is making a big mistake. And we do it, you do it, I do it, and we need to be on top of ourselves for it because the mistake is that when we're proud, and when we're boastful, what we're doing is we're not measuring ourselves in comparison to the creator. So it does tie back to this idea of, yes, there is a creator, and it's important to have that in your mind. And think of these things because pride and boasting is when you forget about that. And you're not comparing yourself to God, the Creator, or Jesus, the Savior. It comes when you're comparing yourself to other people. You know, that man, he has more pigs than me. And that's the problem. And that can lead us into situations where we think uh, or we act harm towards our neighbor. So here's a takeaway, all right? A takeaway, compare yourself to God, not to other people, That's how we deal with these two problematic behaviors because these affect, and this this is the theme that I have for this sin list, which is this is about how we think about other people, the negative and hostile ways that we think of other people. Pride and boasting, Okay, they're problems for us internally in our relationship with God, but they're also problematic behaviors because they say something about our attitude towards other people. Wanting to elevate ourselves, want to seem more important. So compare yourself to God, not to other people. And there are scriptures that that give you more detail on that. Okay, just straight-up hostility and opposition. And this goes into one of the other sin lists. Um, And the word is hatred, okay? Hatred. And, uh, you know, I I looked at this word and I thought, okay, hatred, I know what hatred means. You know, I think we've all experienced moments when someone's hated you or you've kind of hated someone else. Uh, But I took a little dig in on this, and this is the word throw. It appears six times. And no big surprises here. It means to oppose with hostility. Okay? To be an enemy of. And I started looking at the translation and how it's working. And and, uh, in the sin list of Galatians 5 verse 20, the word is rendered hatred. Right? So if I I go back to my uh, original chart, you'll see it listed there as hatred. Okay? But... The other five times you see it in scripture, it's translated as enmity, enmity. I think it would have been better if it was always translated the same way. I think that the English word hatred doesn't have the same meaning to us as enmity. So the English word hatred in the Bible is usually a translation of the word misio, which is a totally different word. So when you're reading the English Bible and you're seeing hatred, well sometimes it's this word and sometimes it's a totally different word and they don't necessarily mean the same thing. The one that I'm dealing with is this one, which is being in opposition to people. Okay? So why do we ever want to see harm come to another person? Or to dominate them? Isn't it because we come to view them as our enemies? or are rivals. Isn't that what really kinda it gets down to? You know? Why do we want to elevate ourselves over other people, boast, raise ourselves up with pride, have malign thoughts? It's because we're looking at other people as enemies. And if you get back to the whole concept of, you know, how you how you view the world without a creator, well, okay, maybe we just looked at them as rivals for food, shelter, sex, things like that. You know, it's just a vicious battle that we're trying to survive in, right? And, you know, you're out there, you're you're my opponent for scarce resources. So you're my enemy. The way we view the world changes how we view other people. And it can have some very bad results. Now, sometimes, you know, it's me against the whole world. Sometimes it's me and my brother against the whole world. Me and my brother against the whole world. And then sometimes it's uh, me and my brother and my cousins against the whole world. Or maybe it's me, my brother, my cousins, and everybody else who looks or thinks like me against the whole world. Right? And everybody else is a potential enemy. And that's just one way of looking at the world as a giant contest. And we're just part of it. And really, that's how our dog-eat-dog world is set up. Because so many of us, and I'm not talking about us being this room, but I mean us as a, you know, just everybody, deny God as creator. And don't have that understanding to guide the way they think. But God has a very different vision for life and it is central to the gospel. And that vision is reconciliation. He just has a totally, totally different way of looking at everything. You, know, you see this in the scriptures when someone dares to actually you know, ask God a question, and you see this often with Jesus as well, the answer that they get is like, what? It's not what you're expecting. Because God really has a very different way of looking at things. I mean, we might think that we've overcome the problematic thinking there in Romans 1 of not accepting God as our creator. But I think some of it, you know, we still have to kind of work at getting rid of. And so there's certain things that God does and and thinks about that we're not quite there yet. Reconciliation might be one of them. And it's something that really should be prioritized on our list of, we got to get this in our head. The first thing God wants to do and before anything else happens, before anything can change between you and you and you or you and me and, you know, some of the problematic, harmful thoughts that we have is that God has to reconcile you with him, okay? There has to be this reconciliation between you and him. And through sin, each of us has made ourselves an enemy of God, We've made ourselves an enemy of God, an enemy of our creator. And God opens the door to reconciliation through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And you walk through that doorway, right? You repent. You're baptized. And then you receive his Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And through that Holy Spirit, you begin to see the world through different eyes. And that makes all the difference. And because of this reconciliation, you are chosen to live a life of pursuing reconciliation and peace with those around you. So, the takeaway for number one is get baptized. <laughs> Okay, so the second the second thing that God wants is he wants you to become a reconciler and a peacemaker. Go to Luke 6 verse 32. Luke 6 verse 32 through 36. Jesus' words here, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. You know, my brother and me, my brother and my friend, or my, my brother and my cousins. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Go to Romans 12, verse 17. Romans 12, verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, heaping, burning coals on someone's head is a quote from Proverbs. It's an Old Testament quotation. And it means leaving that person to the judgment of God. God's the one with the coals. God's the one with the destroying fire. You're leaving the decision-making, the condemnation, the judgment to God. He will take revenge. Rather than taking revenge or retaliating yourself. And that idea goes all, you know right back to Proverbs. It's been in God's word all the time. The desire to do harm to those that you perceive as rivals has to end with you. It has to stop with you. You've seen me put the cycle up there, this leads to this again, and it goes around in a cycle and it gets worse and worse and magnifies, and you have to stop it with you. You're the only one who can stop it by doing something or not doing something. It's up to you to stop the never-ending cycle of animosity and hostility that leads to revenge, that leads to more animosity and hostility, that leads to more revenge, right? Even when it's completely justified. So your takeaway on this one, your takeaway is stop the cycle. Stop the cycle. You just stop it. Number seven, hotness of heart lacking emotional control. Now, God created us with emotions, and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it feels good, sometimes it feels very bad. I mean, when you're full of sorrow, you might wish that God had not created you or anybody else with emotions. Why do we have emotions if they're so horrible and I feel so sad all the time? But then, then when you're riding high on a wave of joy, oh, yeah, it's sweet, isn't it? You know, and and when that's happening, then you're thinking, I am, yeah, I like the fact that God made us with emotions. Having emotions is part of being made in the image of God. It is. And to develop holy, righteous character, the character of God, our Father, we must learn to control our emotions. And here are two important ones, wrath and anger. Wrath and anger. And I've talked a little bit about wrath before, thumos, thumia, and it is is a variation of the word. And it means fierce, okay? Fierceness, intensity, okay? And uh, literally heavy breathing. Okay? And like most emotions, it can be good or bad depending on what it's pointed at. A bad example, uh, we looked at one in one of the previous sessions, uh, I think it was on quarreling, maybe sins of the tongue. Um, I think actually we looked at, at in both quarreling and sins of the tongue where wrath was added to some perfectly normal behavior and turned it into something horrible. A good example of wrath is God's righteous wrath, okay? And that is where God is angry at sin. And, you know, I, I'm glad he's angry at sin because that means he's going to do something about it. So the other word on, on this here is anger, okay? And it's, it's from this word, orge, which is a really cool word. I mean, it makes me think of ogres. And, orge, and it appears 36 times, and this is anger, okay? And uh, whereas Thumos is like a sudden flame of indignation that <laughs> just burns up and like, like a flamethrower. <laughs> uh, this one, Orge, is more like a slow burning fire. You know, slow burning fire. It's just simmering away there, just building building, building is determined and it's relentless. It carries a sense of uh, relentless vengeance, relentless seeking of, of judgment and condemnation. Go to Revelation 16, verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts. I'm, doing, I'm reading this verse because you see both these words in the same sentence. So you know that they're, not meant, they're, they're meant to mean something different. They're different aspects. Uh, so, so now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And the great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Okay, And you'll also see that again uh, in Revelation 19, verse 15. But I'll I'll let you read that on your own. The fierceness of his wrath. You see both of them. This hot flash. But also his wrath, which has been slow, steady, and burning. So in the English translations that we use, the words are kind of used interchangeably. The translations are are interchangeable. But they're they're meant to be different things, okay? Um, And so we just read an example where both are used side by side, you know. And I think it means, you know, when... You know, God's judgment is building up a long time, and when it happens, it's going to happen. Uh, When these words are used to describe human actions or thoughts or our words, it's usually in association with other sins, like I mentioned, quarreling, sins of the tongue, sometimes greed. Wrath and anger are kind of like, think of them this way. Think of them as the spicy pepper seasoning that you squeeze all over your food to make it hot and spicy, right? That's what wrath and anger are like. Well, they turn a simple egg omelet into a burning, blazing fire in your mouth. Okay, they, they add a lot of spice. But in this case, negative, bad spice. They heat things up. And sometimes things ought not be heated up, which takes us to our takeaway. What is the answer? What is the answer? The answer is to practice emotional control. So in the case of wrath, okay, that hot flame, how do you deal with that? How to deal with the you know, fire that bursts up in, the, in a moment? Be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Listen, you know, listen, and try and understand the situation. That's how we deal with, with this thumos, right? And resist the impulse to assume the worst, which kind of goes back to our original concept of how we see the world. You know, you're just expecting everybody to be your enemy. So how do you do with anger, orge? Well, you've got more time on this one, right? Because this is a slow burning. So you've got lots of time, maybe a lifetime to think about this one. Maybe a month. You've got time to consider, so think it through. Put it into the big picture, okay? Put it into the big picture. And leave vengeance and judgment to God, who will judge righteously. And as we read earlier, answer the evils done to you with good and with offers of reconciliation and peace. Okay. Next coldness of heart the ice queen as I mentioned God made us with emotions right? He made us with emotions and he wants us to learn how to control them but he doesn't want us to deaden our emotions either to the point where we feel nothing. That is not God's goal. I don't I know it's not God's goal. I mean, if he wanted us to have no emotions, we could have just skipped the whole thing and he could have created us without emotions, right? But then we would not be made in the image of God. We wouldn't have an essential part of what it means to be in the image of God, which is emotions. But he's also created us in a condition where, you know, like a little baby, you know, when babies cry, took me a while to figure this out as a dad. They cry because that's all they know what to do. And their whole life is about controlling their emotions. And as a parent, you have to kind of teach them because you know, when they're a little baby, their emotions are all over the place. Good or bad, you don't even know because <laughs> it all comes out the same hole in the same volume and They have to learn how to control their emotions. And this is God's plan for us as spirits or as those who are going to be part of God's family to control our emotions, okay? Become an adult, if you will. So the three that I've got here are without natural affection, implacable, and unmerciful, which are part of the sin list, but they're all cold, cold cold-hearted. So without natural affection is this word estorgos, you only see it twice in Scripture. And it means people who have hardened themselves to those who are close to them, such as to parents, uh, to family, to children, associates, and so forth. And it's, it's only found in this sin list of Romans 1, which we read through. And it's also found in that description of what people will be like in the end time. You know, fierce, horrible, blah, blah, blah. And that's in Second uh, Timothy 3, verse 3. But to get some idea or sense of how it might apply, let's look at the, a word that has sort of the opposite. Okay, So this is estorgos. So the opposite of it is Okay, love of kindred. Go to Romans 12, where we were before. There's, you know, like, there's no other place where you find it in scripture, so I'm going to look at the opposite. And um, Romans 12, verse 9 through 13 says this. Let love be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate, be philostorgos. You know. Have love, natural affection, okay, to one another. With brotherly love, Philadelphia, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and given to hospitality. So he even gives you some great examples of what Paul considers displays of natural affection, the opposite of no natural affection. What does he say? Honoring one another, holding other people in high esteem, thinking well of them, uh, praying for one another, sharing with those in need, and hospitality, which means getting together in, in other people's homes, eating together, things like that. So here's your takeaway. If you've been putting off doing any of those things until you feel it, you're missing the point. Just as we have to bring emotions like anger and wrath into control, we must actively work to develop emotions like philostorges to our brethren in the church. And we do this by taking action. Sometimes emotion leads to action, sometimes action leads to emotion. Our next word, implacable. Another um, word we don't find often: espondos. Uh It's only found in the Romans one list, and then that list of the terrible people at the end times in Second um, Timothy three verse three. It means a person who won't make peace. You know, and, and sometimes you—I don't know if you ever met a person like this, but a person who just won't be reconciled. They just won't make peace. They can't enter into an agreement or a truce, and they won't be reconciled. And that could, that could happen in two different ways, okay? And um, you might have experienced both. You might have only experienced one. We'll see. One way is it could be someone who does not want to make peace, who won't go there, because they want to keep on fighting. And they don't want to let it go because there's this, there's this thing inside us all uh, where well, we all want there to be a clear winner and we want it to be us. Human beings have a very strong desire to be proven right, and not only that, but to be acknowledged and seen by everybody else as right. That's how we are, okay? Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Uh, this is a you know, when there's that big problem and there's a lawsuit in the, in the church and that, and Paul's getting, getting on them saying, what are you people doing? And he says this in verse seven, uh, go through verse nine. He says, okay, now therefore, you know, because of all this stuff with the lawsuit, it is already a complete, utter failure for you. You go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No. But you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So to make peace, sometimes it means that you have to give up on your need to be proven right and that everybody else knows I was right. You just have to let that go. That's one of the ways that implacable can work Someone who just won't go there. I think that another way is someone who will not abide by a truce, alrighty? So perhaps you made peace with someone over some point of disagreement. I mean, hopefully you haven't been on the opposite side of this, but it can happen. You know, perhaps giving on a few points where, you know, you know you're right. You know you're right, but you let it go. But then the other person won't let it go. And that could be about something trivial like you know who won the 1967 World Series or it could be something important. You know, it could be someone who won't let go of some sin that supposedly had been forgiven. And you kind of reach this agreement, it's forgiven, but they won't let it go. That's implacable. Okay, so the last word is unmerciful. <laughs> and this word only one time, boing, one time in the entire uh, Bible you find it. It's in the sin list there in Romans 1. But I think with this one, we can understand it by, again, looking at its opposite, which is mercy. So unmerciful, the opposite of that is mercy, okay? Look, I'm not going to try and cover mercy in, in the, the last few minutes of the message. What I want to say is this. What is mercy? Okay, well, mercy is when we have every right to condemn or punish another person, but we don't, in a nutshell. And they may have wronged you, and they may have hurt you, they may have taken something from you, but you let them off the hook. And God shows mercy, right, because he wants sinful human beings to have every opportunity to turn their life around and to repent, and to lay hold of eternal life. And he wants good things for human beings. Not bad things, which is where we go with this whole list. This is all about how we think about others. Hostility versus having good thoughts about people. And God wants good things for human beings. He wants you and me to feel the same way about others, about one another, about our brothers and sisters, and even to those who oppose us, because if we don't have mercy, everybody ends up dead, like really dead, like eternally dead. So conclusion, conclusion, the sins of bad temper, well, they've got a common thread, okay? It's how we think about others. What do we desire for others? Do we think or treat others as friends or enemies? Are they family or are they rivals? This applies within the church and outside the church. And if God is going to raise you up to be seated with Christ and to assist him in the millennial rule and beyond, then you have to build a positive outlook towards others. So this sin list is, is another listing of things to avoid and kind of work in the opposite direction too.